have great pleasure in welcoming a good friend of mine, somebody who I've known for both a number of years from both a professional and lovely to get to know you from a personal perspective as well, Dan Craig. Dan, hi, how are you today? Hello, I'm good, thanks. It's nice to be on the other end of uh, of a podcast. I remember I, I tried to set up a little tiny health podcast a while back, uh, which remained very tiny, but it was good fun. But I've never been on the on the uh, the other end, the other seat, as it were. So I'm good. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Dan, I know I have to really be careful and behave myself. I've got my, my best behavior here, speaking <laughs> to somebody who does know how to podcast properly. Uh, oh, I, I think we're just bumbling our way through this, but we're having great fun. You know, just as a quick introduction to yourself, how, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, <laughs> it's a great question. It's the who are you question, isn't it? As opposed to what do you do? Um, well, I suppose professionally, uh, I've been you know, working in health and health and well-being for around about 13 years. We've been connected before uh, professionally, as you mentioned, uh, at places like AXA Health and pr- most recently a company called Champion Health I worked for as well. So very much in this kind of corporate health and well-being space, but with a an early grounding, I suppose, in, you know, exercise sciences, metabolic sciences at university, up to a PhD level, although I never actually completed my PhD, I hasten to add, um, decided that, you know, seven, eight hours a day in a dark room looking at microscope slides all by myself just wasn't wasn't going to cut it. I couldn't do that for another two years. So decided to leave that. And uh, here we are today. But that's that's uh, a little bit, I suppose, about my background. Yeah. Um, and really, my mission, I suppose, personally speaking, has always been to make, you know, to support people that need or want to make changes to their health and, and well-being in any domain. It doesn't necessarily, it's kind of landed in the workplace because, you know, there's not many better domains. I don't think there's, unless you're very fortunate, you're going to capture a lot of people in the workplace. And uh, of course, there's lots that goes with that in terms of challenges. But I've always wanted, just simply speaking, to utilize any of the skills that I've got or acquired, you know, over the years to really help people experience those transformations in health long-term and that's that's it yeah that's my simple mission yeah it sounds a good mission and um i think you know it's a nice mission and i guess it's it feels very purpose driven i think there's been a massive pop-up of uh, health and well-being solutions especially during and post pandemic and it feels like it's um my my bugbear really is is that too many things get getting pushed to you know, employee assistance programs rather than get into the actual core of what's going on in the organization. Have you have you got the same bugbear? I've got that bugbear. I've got, you know, a number of other bugbears that I could yeah. talk about. <laughs> um, I think there's uh yeah, I think generally speaking with we particularly in the last couple of years, we've we've moved health and and well being, which we use interchangeably, by the way, often to uh, to not a great outcome sometimes, but we've moved it very much uh, towards a, a very generalist kind of a topic where everyone is sort of an expert. Everyone has their say, of course, and uh, but it's very difficult to navigate that field in a in a kind of robust, insight-led. You know, we we talk about data a lot still, but I think we've moved away a lot from from a kind of more empirical view of it and much more into. I don't know, a kind of transient uh, hot topic 
thing that you know comes in waves we, we ride the waves of whatever it might be at that time and then we move away from that conversation and we don't really see much of an impact long term which is a real shame mm-hmm. so trying to reintroduce that uh is is really difficult but i think very uh very empowering you know to as a mission yeah. i think like one one thing that really stands out to me you know tied to what i just said is that you get now people like social media influencers uh, maybe who've got a decent following and they're talking about their own mental health and well-being and almost using it to advise other people about what to do and i think personally i think it's just dangerous route to start going down because you know you you're there as a person you've got people that are following you and then you're offering them advice and it's i just think that people are easily influenced these days and it's not necessarily science backed and that i think that's a dangerous route um i guess more of a comment than a question to you but yeah if you i guess if you had the same experiences um you know knowing your background and your qualifications yeah. i guess you you feel that at times as well yeah well 100% i think the the difficulty lies in how do you tell a really engaging story? Um, you know, if you've got people who have got a lot of lived experience of, let's just say, mental health, because th- I think those conversations um, have really dominated the last couple of years. But, you know, you might have, I don't know, you see Prince Harry on the TV or something talking about mental health difficulties and everything. And it's it, it comes across as really inspiring because it is inspiring, right? People are talking about it and that's great. Um, it's. I find it much more difficult to tell a, as opposed to just a, a lived experience, to bring in more of a clinical element in terms of you know what what do we understand really works in terms of insights and um, taking research and making it really accessible uh, and impactful. That's a that's more of a difficult story to tell, just in the sense that it's more difficult often to connect with. It doesn't have maybe as much of an emotional rooting you know, as somebody's story that they've journeyed through hardship and whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, we've, we've definitely gravitated a lot towards this dominating lived experience thing. Uh, you know, people get invited into businesses all over the place who are um, not necessarily, you know, maybe they haven't studied this or they haven't worked at, in this field uh, as a practitioner or anything like that, but they might have an incredible story uh of from their life and that's what you know we we tend to lean on quite a lot especially at the moment especially with mental health in particular dan i've got a very quick follow-on question to that so you know i've got my own observations and thoughts around this but there seems to be potentially a uh, a topic here that lots of people can capitalize on because of the lived experience perhaps that then is being utilized potentially as, dare I say, a bandwagon or a fashionable way to enter into providing a service. And like you said, there are some serious considerations behind building a service like clinical considerations, organizational responsibilities, accreditations, and so forth. Do you do you feel that, or is that just something that you know I feel lonely in having that observation <laughs> of my own? Um. Yeah, I think there's, we've got this, I think we've still got a bit of a a top-down approach, even when it comes to service provision, you know, where we try and create something really impactful, really, um, you know, clinically backed and and so on for people that might need or want that support. Um, But we, we, I think we often still lose sight, regardless of that perspective, we still lose sight of 
who it is that we're trying to really help. Um, I think lots of services, lots of provisions, lots of tech platforms, you know, whatever it is that you want to talk about, a lot of them are nowadays asynchronous. You know, there's asynchronous coaching platforms, there's asynchronous content platforms where you're not actually connected necessarily, you know, with the individual in question, whoever they may be, wherever they are, and whatever their issue is. Um, and it's not to say that those things aren't impactful. They can be very impactful. You can get some fantastic content out there and fantastic, um, you know, things that you can interact with to, to self-improve and, and all of that. But I think just reminding ourselves that we're trying to, we're people trying to help people and we need to be able to connect really well with individuals on their level. Um, and doing that from a distance or through a tech platform, uh, you know, is still very difficult. Yeah. But these these are early days, right? We've only we've only had a few years where health and well-being pl- apps and platforms and so on have really just exploded. I guess partly to just due to the pandemic and everything, but um, we've still got a long way to go, really, before we can connect the dots and have the impact that I think we really want to see. Yeah, I think it's that push-pull thing for me. Like, we're really good at pushing things onto people, like, here's this subscription to this app, and here's this, and here's this guidance document. And I think a lot of, you know, things happen. Um, It could be mental health, and, you know, a a disaster happens, and then it's, uh, oh, well, we never knew that they were feeling that, and And it's like, well, because you've pushed a load of information on, but you've not pulled information from that person to even find out that that person was struggling. And you've now, you've kind of missed that opportunity. And I think, it, for me, it goes back to that human connections, conversations. An organisation I used to work for, um, we had a wellbeing coordinator who essentially was, I guess it was to some extent replicating what, you, you know, what happened in the church in that she was there to just talk to people. And it was, you know, and it was almost come across to some people as the, or she's just there for people to moan to. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It's about having a conversation about what's going on in people's lives. And it might have looked like that from the outside, but actually it was really valuable information that was coming through that that then meant that the organisation could support the individuals that were really struggling. Um, so I think there's an element of tech can get you so far, but I do think then that you need some people intervention um do you do you agree disagree what's your thoughts on that oh yeah i mean i agree in lots of ways and without wishing to sound you know i've still retained my scottish accent somehow i've lived in england now for like 20 years but without wishing to sound too shrecky about this i feel like health is Health is like a health is like an onion, right? You've got loads and loads of layers that you've got to get through before you get to even answering or try, or getting close to answering the question. Maybe why does somebody want to make some kind of a change, or why do they feel like they need help or support or whatever that might be? Uh, and without even you know being able to go through those question, you know those questions with somebody exploring someone's real desire, what's what's lying underneath. A, a desire or a need, right, to change something, to improve their health in some way. It, everything else is going to be kind of just throwing stuff at a wall and just seeing what sticks. And if you're lucky enough, you might capture a couple of people. Um, and then you introduce a kind of, again, an asynchronous platform within an organization of thousands of individuals. I mean, yeah, it, the yeah the impact is, is inevitably going to be 
minimal, uh, I think, at that point. And you can demonstrate engagement and all of that in all kinds of ways. And there's lots of companies out there that you know really thrive off of telling people how well engaged their platforms are and all of that. But actually, the end product isn't any different. People don't make massive changes and we don't see the societal shift towards better health and all of that. So this is just a hugely complex um yeah, topic in general. Having said that, I think that we're personally speaking, where I've seen the most impact or the biggest change, even though it might only be on a small micro level, is where you've got fantastic interactions between people. And that doesn't have to be a health professional. It can just be human to human interaction, but with an understanding of maybe what people need and how you can kind of uh, help people to under to get the best out of themselves and so on uh and that's a bit of a step away from a clinical service provision and all of that but actually that's where we see lots of the that's where i see a lot of the amazing changes so uh but it's a difficult one to convince people on and try and get more people on that bandwagon ali as you called it (laughs) so my own little bandwagon i think like the the whole thing around the role of the leader in all of this because a good leader would be able to have a conversation with someone that they manage and be able to not just pick up on them signs that someone's struggling but then be able to have the vulnerability and the the guts to have the conversation as much as it's going to be a hard conversation maybe of saying how are you feeling and being ready for, for the, the answer that might come. And I think the other thing that stands out to me is the ability to listen and truly listen, not just listen to respond. And I think that's the biggest, one of my biggest bugbears with leaders is they listen and then they go into fixed mode. And, and actually, sometimes you, you, your team members are not talking to you because they need you to do something. They're talking to you because they trust you, they need to get it off the chest. There's many reasons why someone's like talking. And um, I, th- I think, you know, and that's, that's also a far kind of cry away from then clinical support, like a therapist or a coach. Um, but there's definitely a layer in there before we start saying, oh, yeah, you're freaking out and you, you, you know, here's the EAP number. And you're like, no, that's not the next step here. How about a conversation first? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, dr- it drives me a little bit uh, to insanity. So, but I'll, um, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I remember thinking several years back. In fact, Ali, I may, I may well have shared this this concern with you once upon a time in, in a working capacity, where this was kind of just on the brink of when mental mental health was starting to to really explode and capture people's imagination, become super popular in in conversations. Um, you know, back then, which I would say was maybe five or maybe five or six years ago. So, something like that i i had a real concern at that time where i was like you could see this happening right more people simone you mentioned leaders how to talk about mental health this idea of talking about mental well-being being you know transformative and this not a cure-all for problems but something that's really good to do i i always just had in the back of my head and it's i think been validated over the last year 18 months two years Okay, so what next, right? So if you're having a conversation, let's say someone has mustered up the courage to share something that they're feeling, um, even it doesn't have to be a mental health crisis situation, but it could just be a difficulty of any sort. Um, What then? You know, we're going to lift a lid on an issue here societally 
everyone's going to start talking about it because we're telling people that talking is really good and therapeutic and all of that. But if it's not being met, if the connection isn't being made in both directions, actually it can be really destructive to the process. Uh, We're talking, you don't want people to feel palmed off. You don't want people to feel unheard or unvalidated. And even the smallest little kind of one-to-one interactions, a little break in body language, a little break in eye contact can be enough for somebody who's really struggling to suddenly retreat way back into themselves and think this hasn't worked for me, I'm, you know, and it's a lost, uh, you know, that's the, that's not the outcome that we want to have. So Ali, I remember saying, we're going to lift this lid. Nobody's going to know what to do with all of these issues that are going to start to come out. And I think we're still in that issue at the moment, yeah. uh, whereby we're still the, the conversations of how to talk about mental health um, how leaders can adapt better, beha- can adopt better behaviours, how they can walk the walk the walk as much as they talk it, and that's still, I think that will remain quite a dominant conversation for a while, um, which is a real shame. Uh, so we need to act quite quickly, I think, in order to really start helping people. To be honest I think with you, there's got to be a massive upskilling of leaders, the people that are hearing the information and knowing of the steps that need to happen next. I don't think it's just a, a mental health kind of thing here either. It's a the amount of people that are now mm. speaking about the menopause in the workplace, you know, thanks to things like Davina McCall. Every workplace now suddenly thinks that they've got a menopause policy and everything's fine. And you're like, no, that's that's not the answer here. Like this this is about education and it's not just women, it's also men in the workplace as well that need the education. And it's there's there's this kind mm. of like it feels like Pandora's box has opened and there's locusts and everything everywhere we're not we're not putting them back in the box we're just letting them kind of like fly around to the locust fly i'm not sure uh, <laughs> just but they're all like flying around and it's like oh actually you know we need to we need to get to the bottom of this of, of how do we control the locusts and and get them back in the box but in a in a neatly stacked format that you know the it's you know i always think like therapy is like a filing cabinet and you your files fly out of your flying cabinet and by the time you've finished in therapy, they're all in A to Z, you know, alphabetical order, and you know that that thing there is there, and it's for that reason. And and I think the the stuff that's happening in the workplace at the moment feels very similar to this, in that there's just lots of things flying around, and nobody really knows how to get to the bottom of it, um, or to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned menopause. Menopause is a really good example where I, I've worked with organizations before, um, you know, ad- talking to their right from the senior leadership, you know, C-suite type of individuals all the way down to apprentices who have just joined that work, uh, that organization uh, and what have you. And even just putting a session on if it's a webinar or something like that which we know the engagement's not great with webinars and things and certainly the outcomes um are very poor on the back of those but nonetheless it's still a useful um method i think just to engage with people on mass and that's and that's good just having the conversation lots of people feel good about it right they feel empowered in the case of menopause often mainly women who join these calls feel great because it's like you're normalizing symptomatic symptoms of of perimenopause and all of that and trying to introduce just a a level of conversation around it and that sometimes is enough just to generate a good a good response but on the flip side 
you know, culturally, depending on the organization and what have you, you've still got huge challenges, um, whereby if it was on the other foot, and that's not just to say only men here, but anyone who doesn't either have symptoms of menopause or maybe isn't going to have symptoms of menopause uh, and looks upon it with a level of, you know, that maybe they just, they think it's a bit of a joke and stuff like that. That happens. Like, let's just be honest. That happens all over the place. Um, how do we... If, the, if it was on the other foot, as I say, they would feel very different about it. And that, in, it, that in essence, is the, is the issue. These are just, simply speaking, these are biological processes that anyone, you know, anyone, uh, any woman is going to go through in particular. And that's not something that we need to go kind of around the houses about and try and, try and introduce lots of, you know, answer lots of difficult questions. It just is the way it is. Like, you know... Let's just be real about it. Let's be normal about it. And let's try and help you help people understand what the symptoms are. And it's the same for things like prostate. You know, when I ask a group of, of, of men what they think the prostate is and what it does, clinically speaking, you know, <laughs> very few are able to answer that question without being told. And that's, you know, that's a long standing issue. I think there's probably all kinds of things we could do better from an early age to try and address some of those issues. But yeah, just uh, you said menopause, and I, my ears perked up there for for that one. So I think you know, as a thirty four year old woman, um, I only recently, in the last few years, started listening to uh, a speaker called Kate Usher, and she is the the wife of somebody I know, Neil Usher. And I came across all her work on the menopause, and I sat there and went, "Uh, why has no one told me about this before? Oh my days, this can <laughs> yeah. happen to me like soon. I'm what?" And it was like, I felt like society had failed me because I thought I was a 34-year-old woman if I had not been told any of these things to look what to look out for, perimenopause. Like, I could be a few years away from it. I don't know. And it was like, actually, we've. it's great that it's now been spoken about because awareness has been raised. But again, how can we go next step? What's next? What's next? Because now I'm sat there almost waiting to, to dry up. And it's like, oh, so am I just waiting now for the menopause and then I can speak about it again? Whereas actually, how can I be an ally for those in the workplace that are going through it? And not just women, but also men. Like, obviously, the menopause is affecting men that are married to women in a massive way, in many ways. And it's like, how, so how can I be supportive to my colleagues that are maybe kind of experiencing this as well? And I think that's something we need to get better at. And it's not a... We need to speak about mental health because you might have a mental health problem. Um, it, you know, let's speak about physical health because you might be. It's actually like, how can we just be better humans? Uh, you know, how can we be better colleagues, mm -hmm. better friends, yeah. better humans, and just be, um, yeah, like that more supportive ally of how can I listen? How can I direct people to more support that they may need? And, and I think that's probably something that we all need to kind of be a bit more conscious of. And I think there's a getting the data. But then, okay, well, now what do we do? Um, uh, yeah, I think that's the the biggest thing that kind of flies out for me, really. But um, do you think do you think enough people are looking after their health in the workplace? Um, like, do you think it's a massive kind of? It feels like we've gone through this period of, oh, we've got sit stand desks, we've got personal trainer in the, in coming into the workplace, and we've got yoga and we've got water and free fruit, and it feels like we've been doing all of these tick boxes like. And actually, we've still got, if you look at the country, we've got massive health challenges. So, like, where where do you think this is going wrong? Well, I think that there's always been an appetite 
for talking around health and well-being in a way that other other uh, conversations don't invoke a kind of emotional response like to to give you an example i used to go into businesses um at my, in my days with with axa health and i would do clinical health assessments with individuals including all the basic stuff just from like your height weight right through to measuring blood serum level of cholesterol and blood sugar and all of that body fat percentage you name it just do a batch of tests and then we could support people through uh, all kinds of stuff thereafter um, but the biggest one that always kind of invoked this big big response was BMI, right? BMI was like the one that people either didn't like, they didn't want to have measured because they didn't believe in it. They had a strong belief system kind of against BMI. And we know the reasons why people often cite that. All the way through to they were kind of open to the response. But if you told, you know, a, a, a shorter I remember specifically, actually, one time telling a shorter lady in a in a bank branch. I told her what her BMI score was, and it was you know it was in the obese category, uh, and she had a full on meltdown at at me. Like you know, I was the messenger, obviously, of this of this result. I tried to deliver it as empathetically as I possibly could, but uh, she stood up, walked out of the room because she just she just was kind of insulted almost to to see what this number meant. Um, and that I remember stood out to me not not because it was uh, a little bit traumatic, you know, trying to deal with 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 that situation, but because it was so obvious that just talking about health could have this huge emotional impact on people, um, as I say, that other things don't. So there's always been an appetite, and I don't think the appetite has dropped. I think it's quite a transient one. It depends on what's being talked about at the time, uh, particularly in the last eighteen months. You know, I could go into or I could speak to any of my contacts in organizations that we were partnered with and say we've got this fantastic session we've got a great partnership uh, on menopause or women's health and that would just get snapped up right because it's it's just in the top of everyone's minds I could go and talk to them right now about physical health and it would just get it would just sink in the water immediately because no one's nobody's really talking about that at the moment um so I think everyone is everyone tries their best at the end of the day everyone everyone has an appetite to to read stuff there's things in the news all the time about health and in all kinds of ways I saw one today about uh, a world leader I can't remember who it was but a world leader who sleeps for I think only five hours a night and the the questions were oh, what's the appropriate amount of sleep and all of that so th- these things come and go um we do have a lot of issues in the UK. If you look at all the kind of different data sets and so on, there's pros and cons. There's things that we do quite well and there's other things we're just, we're not good at and we haven't been good at for like the longest period of time. Let's go back to the basic five a day portions of fruit and veg. Ali, you, you know, you, you and I know full well, Simone, you do as well around those risk reduction factors, right? If we want to reduce our physical health risk of things like strokes, type 2 diabetes, heart health, whatever, that's a highly controllable factor. But nobody nobody gives a shit about five five portions of fruit and, fruit and veg a day because it's like an old wives' tale nowadays. Nobody, nobody really pays attention to it. And when we look at the data, you know, only I think something around 27, 28% of people in the UK would would say that they do get that amount and that number hasn't changed for about 30 years and we've gone through cycles of talking about it and trying to put initiatives into workplaces for example 
So I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you. I still think that there's a huge amount of personal intervention, like personalized approaches that need to be had. And that's where apps, that's where platforms go wrong. I think a lot of, actually going wrong isn't the right expression. I just don't think they're geared, designed in a way, or maybe we don't even have the technology yet to to do it really well. Uh, But again, those one-to-one coaching interactions where you get somebody in a room and you can kind of lean on whatever you need to, if it's a mental health or a physical health or a social well-being, whatever it might be, conversations to support people. Um, not just using lived experience, but combining lots of different methods has been shown you know, unequivocally to be extremely powerful. But we're, we're still moving away. So maybe that's part of the issue, actually, is that we're moving faster and faster towards a tech-first approach to almost everything. Um, and I'm not convinced yet that that's going to be the answer to all of our prayers when it comes to health and well-being i think um something that stands out for me is um so uh, early on in my career um so i started p degree p teaching went into personal training nutrition um was trying to find where where to go next really and i ended up being a project manager for a children's overweight service called watch it and it got cold because the uh, the government pulled the funding um but i was a project manager there for a few years and one thing that stood out to me was we you know, was trying to change behaviors but there was massive societal issues at the heart of it so could a lower socioeconomic family afford five pieces of fruit and veg a day or is it easier cheaper to go and do Finder's crispy pancakes or any other brand um and basically like feed the kids that instead and it was this this like pattern that kept happening was we know that we need to do it, but there's all these things in the way that are stopping us doing it. And I think I, you know, I'm brought up on a, a council mm. state in the north. I was definitely brought up on this habit of after your meal, you would have a dessert. It was only when I got to an adult and was like, I can't do that every day because it means I'm going to have to do extra exercise because that's really not good. And it's like getting you almost retraining it is that there's nothing wrong with having a dessert, but definitely not every day. And, you know, me and Ali, every time we uh, we go and we'll meet up and we'll have some food and it's like Ali's Baskin Robbins is an absolute <laughs> like, At least, you know, Baskin Robbins and then it's like, well, we'll go for a walk while we eat this. And again, it's like, well, we know it's getting into them healthy habits, isn't it? And I think it's easier said than done um, and everyone's got their own challenges but I think what is really at the heart of a lot of the challenges is shame I think people don't want to often hear the hard things because they almost feel this shame and like they're a bad person and they can't detach mm. an unhealthy habit away from who they are or what they are and it's I think there's a lot of stuff that just becomes internalized um, and I think that's a massive challenge challenge for everybody and for society and in general like mm. yeah it's um yeah an interesting one uh definitely not got the answers at the moment but hopefully at some point we will uh as a as a world we'll have the answers and then <laughs> yeah absolutely well we keep fighting the good fight right we try and make these things yeah. as fun as appealing as engaging as we can and that is the hope that we hold that whether it be a a nutritional intervention like the one you've just mentioned all the way to a a mental health issue for somebody in a workplace, wherever on whatever that issue is. One thing remains consistent. And this is, I think this is quite important and something that I, uh, I try to live by in terms of all my interactions professionally 
uh, as much as anything is that you know as human beings we all share some some very similar needs right from a psychological perspective we all need to feel like we've got autonomy we need connectedness and we need competence um, and if we can tick the all three of those boxes in any domain you like it doesn't matter if it's physical health mental health having a conversation if we can do that more often socially for each other we can build those connections we can make people feel safe we can make people feel like they really matter to others they feel loved even we don't talk about love enough like in this space at all but i think it's very powerful um and also telling people particularly in a work context actually they're really good at what they do you know, that, that level of competence uh, and reaffirming positives constantly as much as we're trying to support people make changes if they need to I th- we lose sight of that quite often so I, for me that's really valuable uh, is to remember that personally but also when we're helping others is if we can fulfill those three kind of basic psychological needs uh we're doing pretty well uh, i think across the board unfortunately that too often is not the case particularly in the workplace as we well know so that's a that's a big challenge the love in the workplace i think it's in a whole new podcast episode because mm. it's something that is you know that whole research around having a friend at work but I, I remember a few years ago, I left a job and my manager um, at the time, and I, I saw him a few months afterwards and he said, I miss you so much that my heart actually hurts. It aches. And I was like, oh, you are too cute. Like, really? <laughs> and for a, a kind of a, a 50-odd-year-old bloke that's based in London to kind of come out with that, it was like, wow, that's not something I expected. And it was... It's, obviously very uh, emotionally intelligent and I'm now working with them again and maybe that's why and it's because you is that human connection bit and it's the um, you you know that you you don't have to leave certain feelings at home you, you you know it's everything about the workplace if I'm having a bad day and stuff he'll go oh, go go log off and go go get a walk and come back later and he, he knows he senses it and I think that importance of that leader and having that kind of voice in the workplace has been critical for years. And I guess it's something that is uh, being talked about more and more now, which is only hopefully be a, a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can leave, if I can, as I've kind of preached throughout my little spiels here, is to try and introduce some insight into this just as much as that story is fantastic, right? But we're, I think we're fortunate now. We've got quite a lot of data that backs the assertion that that connection piece is absolutely paramount for human health and well-being in any domain. Crucially, there's one called the Harvard Study for Adult Development. It was the focus of a fantastic TED Talk, I think, called What Makes a Good Life. Robert Waldinger, who's the study lead of this uh, thing that's been going for 70, 80 years now, started pre-World War II. What they wanted to do was answer the question, you know, what behavior traits what things can we all do to try to predict that we'll live as long and as happy and as healthy and as contented a life as possible and they found that the number one thing the number one most potent you know factor within a a person's life is their subjective level of connectedness and that stood above and beyond any physical health risks like being overweight or smoking as and we would understand those to be quite hefty risky behaviors right particularly smoking Uh, but actually this level of connectedness between our peers our loved ones our family our friends even our colleagues that was the thing uh, and continues to be the thing for subsequent studies 
that appears to be the most powerful trait, uh, powerful tool at our disposal, right? So just continuing to bang that drum, um, share all the love you can with every, every, anyone that you're connected to. That's going to be a great, uh, you know, a good a good way forward when we're thinking about long term health and well being uh, into the future. I was reading something this morning, which was an article, um, and it was about how hybrid working is not to blame for the amount of loneliness in uh, in the workplace at the moment because there's been this whole thing around our hybrid and people working from home. And yes, during a pandemic, it was lonely for some. Um, but now, you know, it's now we're on the other side, hopefully, of this. Um, there's now research obviously being undertaken um, by academics that is actually where's this loneliness feeling coming from? Uh, because it's, we can't blame hybrid working. It's much, it's much bigger than that as a society. You know, libraries have closed, leisure centres have closed, pubs have closed. Like, as a society, we're not as connected as we once were. And there we have it. There's the science to prove that love, connectedness, they all interlink and they help make you happy and they keep you healthy as well. Dan, want to thank you so, so much. There's um, a lot of great detail, advice, passion that comes in your voice. So thanks for joining us once again.